and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly, brought to you in association with Volkswagen, proud sponsors of Irish Rugby. Gavin Casey in the studio here, and I'm joined, as per usual, you could say, by Murray Kinsella of the 42. How are you, Murray? I'm really good. How are you, Gav? I am excellent, thank you. And we're joined as well by Andy Dunn. How are you, Andy? I'm great, thanks, Gav. Brilliant. We'll kick off. Um, <clears throat> somebody has been banned for uh, committing a, <laughs> a crime on the rugby pitch. Nico Lee of the Cheetahs. Uh, I think he... Um, Conducted what you would call a snot rocket. Yeah, snot shot. It's the weirdest one because even when the sighting came through, they always give you the minute. So I always I tend to go back and check the game, have a look, and see uh, what's he going to get here. But this one, look back, and all I saw was Fenger's reaction. Then I thought Nico Lee was actually apologising, kind of putting his hands up to his face, like sorry. But actually, it turns out he was closing one nostril to get a bit more power uh, and emptied the contents. <laughs> onto Fenga's face. It's the most bizarre thing I've seen on a road pitch for a long time. It's, it's so disgusting. 13, he's banned for 13 games, is it, as opposed to Essentially, the season is over. He, he's yeah. out until July. July. 13 game weeks, he's gone. Um, he put out an apology on Twitter through his club yesterday. He forgot to mention Colby Fenga, actually. He apologised to everyone else, but um, pretty embarrassing for him. Uh, and the language in the sighting kind of statement is just interesting just talking about how he was embarrassed yeah um and just how strange an act it was they said it was worst uh, barring obviously injury and foul play it was as bad an act as you can imagine what a clown <laughs> pretty, pretty grim i'd love yeah is there any way to understand the thought process when you're you're in a pretty dangerous physical situation you're trying to clear out a rock um and then you have a moment of clarity the light bulb moment. I'm going to snot rocket on the guy's face below me. It's, it's yeah. really what I mean, I don't know do where, it. what level he needed to go to mentally to that suddenly to pop into his head. Was he storing it for that particular moment, would <laughs> yeah. you reckon? You know, yeah. I like was there a some, pelican of some sort. I don't think there was even anything between the two players off the ball before that. Um, I mean, the there thing, is a real good technique that I watched John Terry back in the day, <laughs> like a technical wizard at the snot rocket. Oh but he, at least he was aiming it at the floor. Yeah. Most, most of the time. I anyway, think the other yeah. thing you compare it to maybe is spitting, um, which is probably something that happens just so rashly. Like I've Fra- spat at someone, but you, I can imagine it's just a, a spur of the moment thing where you where people lose the head. And you may you may be too young to remember Frank Reichard, uh, Dutch legend playing midfield AC Milan yeah, yeah. In, in a World Cup game, Holland against Germany. Rudy Voller uh, gobbed into Rudy into Rudy Voller's ear, like not the earlobe. <laughs> I reckon he got it into his brain. Oh. So <laughs> it's worth it's worth looking up on YouTube as, yeah. a, as a comparative. That's a famous one, yeah. One, yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, you mentioned there, Murray, about spitting. You reckon it's instinctive, and we were, we were talking about this earlier. Like we were we were talking about snot rockets, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't mm. agree. I don't think. Like I don't, how I don't is understand it? it? To be honest, well, like, yeah, it's not instinctive to you, Roy. And uh, it's not instinctive to you, Andy. Just usually, anyway. Floor, well, yeah. you have a spit cup there. If people don't see the video, <laughs> but it's it's like uh, I think you have to, as you said, Andy. It's a it's a moment of clarity where you actually it's consciously a, make the decision to do this to somebody. Skill. I don't it's think learned, it's instinctive. It's a learned it's skill. Disgusting. Yeah. The the ban was twenty six week entry point. Mm. So that was they said it was a top end offence. Obviously, you get fifty percent struck off these days for he admitted the facts, which were pretty clear. I think. Um, and he was kind of embarrassed in the in the disciplinary hearing. So Can't that gets you 13 yeah. weeks off, which is, I guess, pretty lenient. I get the, the, the thing that's been interesting is people have been comparing it to other bands in rugby, though. Yeah. Like Rory Cockett recently, essentially a gouge on Chris Clute gets a three-week ban. Matthew Bastro is the other one that stands out back in September where he got a five-week ban for striking a cast player in the back of the head with his kind of forearm, a prone player on the ground. Really shocking incident. So I guess it brings into question... 
that balance, like what what is worse? One of those strikes, a gouge, or I guess the snot rocket is pretty bad as well. It's very bad, but like it, it does it does kind of make you question the length of some of the bands on the basis that it reminds me a little bit of uh, when you you mentioned the Voller thing there with, with Rijkaard and like it's mm. always said in sport, like oh, spitting at someone or not even in sport, outside of it, spitting at someone is the worst thing you can do. And like it is absolutely disgusting and so disrespectful, but like there are worse things you can do. Mm. And the bands like, for those gouge, are short. someone's eyes yeah. right, right up there. You like, could stamp a guy's leg, stamp a guy's leg and yeah. break it. That's yeah. worse than getting, you know, getting spit in your face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the band is shorter. Mm. What's the worst that's happened to you, Andy? Playing? Um... Uh, Alan Quinn and stamping on my ribs. When was this? Uh, <laughs> Connacht v Munster, I think. Uh, he he. Uh, well, he could certainly see me because I was pleading with him not to do it <laughs> as my arms were being held at the bottom of a rock. But uh, he he pleaded innocence later on uh, oh, over, yeah? a, over a beer. I was having none of it. <laughs> I could see him doing it. So. You've clearly gotten over this over the years. Yeah, well, I, you know, you could see it happening. You could see it about to happen, then feel it happening. Did you actually ask him there and then not to I do it? I said, don't do it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did Do you it. think if you hadn't asked, he might not have done it? I don't I don't think any of what I said mattered. <laughs> I was in the way of the ball, you know, there's, I remember a club player then, uh, a guy had come up from New Zealand playing uh, amateur level in Old Belvedere when I was 18 or 19 and got absolutely shooed out of the way of a rook. Um, but I always laughed and remember he was shouting, fear enough, fear enough. Because he was like, I'm on the wrong side, you yeah. can kick lumps mm. out of me. So he, uh, that was the New Zealand mentality at the time. So, that was yeah, interesting. Um, take it on the chin, get on with it. Although see, I you know, drag Quinny into it while I'm at it. <laughs> yeah. But he couldn't resist when he sees a, an opposition playmaker, especially on the yeah. ground. It was interesting to see Greg Laidlaw recently. You, you saw Sean O'Brien and Peter Manny with their hands on the ball and he went for a, a bit of a shoe. Mm. And the two of them <laughs> seemed to be outraged by it, although they were both off their feet slowing down the ball. It really has kind of gone out of the game, hasn't it? That, yeah, yeah. That, sh- that old school shoeing. Some people are desperate to bring it back in, but really, I, I don't think that's a good idea. I got a, I got a, once got a stamp. I'd come back from an ankle injury. I was playing for Bath against London Irish and I got a, uh, it was, it turns out, accidental stamp on the ankle five minutes into the game. I, I, contorted it into like I was being targeted which I wasn't that good like, <laughs> targeting my ankle and I stood up and I, I punched uh, the the six foot eight London Irish number eight Phil Murphy in the chest I couldn't reach <laughs> at which point he laughed and the referee yellow carded me <laughs> so uh, it was pretty uh, it was a low moment in my rugby career oh that's great I wonder how many former professionals if you'd ask them what's the worst thing to happen here in a rugby pitch their answer would involve Alan Quinlan in some regard (laughs) (laughs) Uh, in that game in which Nico Lee um, committed that cardinal sin uh, Connacht won against the Cheetahs a late win late late show um, but an impressive win nonetheless and probably the best game of the weekend in the Pro 14 Murray Um, Mm. Jack Harty outstanding again yeah, it was actually a really good game. It was very entertaining. The Cheetahs have become so entertaining to watch. And while the Kings are fading away, the Cheetahs are, are staying competitive. So that's really good to see. Carty was excellent. He he just did everything for Connacht, really. He offloaded, he kicked unbelievably well, using his knowledge of, of that wind uh, down into the far right corner in the second half. Some superb line kicks, um, just taking pressure off Connacht at the right times. And there were a number of guys who, who stood up really well. Ulton Delan. Tom Farrell back from international camp as well and Quaylen Blade. I thought Delan's carrying was really, really physical. And Tom Farrell, you know, he's got 24 offloads in the league this season. He's just a, a joy to watch in that aspect of the game, as well as some really good decision making. So um, 
I think it's good to see them just getting the, the confidence out of Ireland camp and coming back in. And a, a number of other guys in the squad, even someone like Stephen Fitzgerald, who's up there on loan from Munster, he did really well and, and, and good to see him getting gains. But Andy Jack Carthy, he's mm. just moved on to another level, hasn't he? And he seems so confident now. He, I mean, Irish rugby mightn't thank me if I was this, to say this. He, you could you could airlift him straight out of the Connacht side and drop him into Rassing now in place of Finn Russell, yeah. and he would set the world alight the way he's playing. That type of skill level he's got, he's the variety in his game. Uh, he's he's got a lot of uh, he's he's got kind of balls as well in terms of decisions he makes that they're not some of them have have a higher risk attached to them, but I think he's he's eliminated the the more the overtly risky stuff out of his game for the betterment of Connacht rugby to keep some kind of semblance of shape. And, and I think two years ago, he was highly skillful, uh, in very much embracing risk as a young player does. And some decisions looked silly on the outset. And you go, okay, that, that changed the course of the game. That's That's been eradicated where the skill level has, has improved and his game management has improved. So he's, he's really coming into his own. Right into that, I think... Ought to be considered now regular, you know, within the Irish setup. Uh, you know, you've 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 Joey, you've um, Ross Byrne. He's right up there in terms of his abilities. Yeah, it'd be great to see him get a cap. And the other thing he's done is kind of listen to Joe Schmidt that improved his defensive game. Yeah, because even at the start of the season he was falling off a lot of tackles. But in this game against the Cheetahs, you saw him actually stripping in the in the tackle, winning turnovers. There was that brilliant intercept after McSwane went down the left. Now it was a clear two on one, and he just times it really well. Gets in between. Uh, the two players and picks off the pass. So um, really positive to see that. And it would just be fantastic, I think, Gav, to see him getting a cap and building on the amount of confidence that he's already grown. Yeah, I think um, Andy Friend alluded to that a couple of weeks ago when Carty was called up to the Ireland squad that he'd been working a lot with Peter Wilkins on his defence. And like, as you mentioned, it's it's actually, there's a marked difference there, a conspicuous difference as well. And it's actually kind of fascinating to know how quickly you can improve that aspect of your game, particularly for a guy who isn't the biggest in the world, you know? Mm. Like, from your perspective, when you were playing, <laughs> like, were you um, surprised by how quickly, like, you could develop skills like that? You were mentioning just off air about how you were coaching an American guy to pass a ball and he... Within you know yeah. two minutes, he was fly, firing balls around. Well, I certainly think defense is very is is quickly coachable when the you've got a player who has a baseline level of of courage. You know, and most rugby players do. There's not many guys um, who are afraid to make a tackle. Um, and sometimes the, those who are a little bit hesitant around contact when there's a big mismatch, there's only one or two small technical shifts, in, in, and it often revolves around. Uh, footwork, actually, as opposed to, stamp, you know, getting 16 studs in the ground to brace yourself for impact is often the r- absolutely wrong way to do it. So the likes of uh, Wilkins working with him, I, I would have thought, is working on technical aspects like he's got great footwork in attack and using it in defence to get close to the uh, the oncoming runner. And then it, the actual impact, you absorb it much quicker, you absorb it much softer and it becomes like the best golf shots you hit you don't feel it it doesn't reverberate from your wrist up to your shoulder when you you shank something in golf a bad tackle feels just the same but if you get you know nimble on your feet it makes a massive difference and he's getting closer to contact uh, just before they hit and that that's one of the technical aspects I think that's really going to help his game going up a notch at international level I think it will come you know 
yeah, monster fairly nimble on their feet as they uh, waltzed through the Kings. Not the down toughest resistance. No, um, I'm starting to under- watching that game. I kind of realised why Andy was saying last week that he wasn't going to watch it. Mm. it was it was pretty um, pretty yeah. pointless stuff, but. Uh, plenty to talk about in Munster and obviously look they can only be who uh, are put in front of them they did the job well but um, a new deal for Tyler Blindat which you Andy had kind of uh, predicted a couple of weeks ago I believe but um, a real uh, I suppose uh, vote of confidence in the guy yeah he's a really influential figure even behind the scenes at Munster Um, for the last couple of years he's actually been presenting a lot of the meetings he's got an amazing rugby brain that was something that was mentioned to me a couple of times when myself and own Luke were down in um, down in New Zealand. Jason Holland actually in the Hurricane said, that guy is one of the best rugby brains I've ever come across. Uh, we went to Christchurch Boys High as well and, and the coaches there remembered him as being probably the most intelligent player they ever worked with. So he's actually doing a lot of that work behind the scenes with Munster and from what I understand actually he's going to kind of move into that coaching area as well on a, on a more formal basis probably from pre-season actually taking some of the sessions. Um, so that's I guess a, a acknowledgement of what he's done over the last couple of years in that department gets a new contract until 2021 and um, I think Andy you said it about they've they've shown that he can play t- 12 as well and that's really I guess that's really important in the squad especially at, at this time of year um, having said that Rory Scanlon I thought was brilliant in, in helping him out in, in, in the in the game last weekend uh, kicking conversions as well he was really influential but um, mm. good news for Tyler Brown Alan. he has lots to offer yeah I I'd, I'd, I was in a, a kind of a, like a corporate style management meeting a, a week or two ago that was work related very different um, from my experience but they said they used this uh, exercise called the mission to Mars uh, who would you bring with you you know in terms of how you recruit people in your own organization on your mission to Mars and they have to go they have to go and spread the word on Mars about what it is you do why you do it and how you're trying to achieve it um, and I that aligns itself with why I think Munster value him so much his his uh, I suppose the cerebral side to his game how he understands the game how he can impart his knowledge to the group in the way he's presented meetings if if you're to look maybe at his injury profile and his on-pitch form in the last 12 months some people away from the scenario go how did that happen or why did that happen but there it's too simplistic you've no idea what and we don't really know to what degree he's influencing their whole culture down there and obviously in a hugely positive way like um Guy, this does a slight disservice to Guy Easterby as a technical player, but he'd 45 caps in around the Irish squad when there were guys at similar levels to him. And apparently, and I knew Guy at the time, he was kept in, involved because he'd such a profound effect on the mood in the group. And that's that's not technical or, or tactical. That's like this guy helps our entire group in terms of their mood. That's mm. invaluable. And if Blaindahl can help them in terms of developing their culture um, and you know almost as a secondary he happens to be a very competent 10, 12 uh, who, who run their game who may not be involved in the Irish squad all that much and therefore if he's injury free isn't ever present in their squad you know three more years is a steal for Munster if he can yeah. help affect change in that, in that team Yeah I guess the other recontract news that people kind of grabbed onto was Abby Matheson extending out until the end of the season as we probably expected from as soon as he came in either if you want Munster to do well and be competitive mm. and right now he gives them the best chance of doing that even when he came off the bench against the Kings he added so much tempo zip accuracy on his pass um, Kieran Parker gets a new contract as well 
uh, and Sean O'Connor is, is going on to a development contract. The other really interesting one is this 19-year-old South African tight head, Keenan Knox, getting a three-year deal. So he'll stay in the academy next year, and then after that, he'll for the remaining two years of that contract, he'll um, go to the senior squad. He came over with another South African youngster, Matt Moore, just at the end of 2017. So um, they'll actually uh, they'll actually qualify for Ireland uh, in the three-year period rather than the, the five-year period. I, I just want to get your take on it, Andy. Like his pedigree is superb. He came out of the Michael House school that produced like Pat Lambie, Robbie Dyack, a couple of other guys who, who've gone on to achieve a lot of things. He played for the Sharks in that Craven week, which is a massive schoolboy competition. And this, you know, Knox was rated as one of the best prospects in the country, as was Matt Moore. Interestingly enough, they, they have the same agent as Johan van Graan, so there's the link there. But um, I just want to get your take on it because mm. I tend to get tweets about him and from angry people that are outside Munster probably saying, you know, it's wrong that... At this level, they're they're taking a South African schoolboy and trying to produce him. Um, I ultimately, I think I'm okay with it. I, if he if he becomes someone who's like a cornerstone of the Munster pack and the Irish pack, there's nobody harumphing about CJ Stander, you know, who was born and bred in South Africa. Um, and if suddenly, if it happens five years earlier at academy level, I get there's going to be some pretty disenfranchised young tight heads and their parents of tight heads and the coaches of that tight head in the school system and academy system. But as long as it doesn't become prevalent, you know, on a, on a scale that, you know, there's five or six of them coming through every year to step in the way. If this guy is way, clearly way better than everyone else at his peer group level, then it makes sense. I think where where it goes wrong, and Leinster, who've completely changed their um, policy on this, like Leinster in the mid-90s used to get guys in from the Southern Hemisphere, and like they were horrible, horrible duds. <laughs> like they were, they were awful rugby players, but they had a Southern Hemisphere accent, and you're talking about guys like Tony Goldfinch, um, Aaron, I can't remember, Aaron's, you know, Eddie Hecknui was he in Eddie there? Eddie was right in there. World and, Eddie uh, the much maligned but, but Eddie it, but Yeah, maligned because they weren't good enough, you know, and they were also, and you know, my personal, <laughs> personal, uh, I was certainly behind Eddie, who, I, I don't know, you know, Nathan Spooner was brought in as a, he was brilliant. He was an international yeah. player. He was established. Eddie Hecknui was a third division club player who was a forklift driver, nothing against that, but he wasn't a professional rugby player and he was brought in ahead of a young Irish professional, me. <laughs> but uh, obviously still annoyed about that one. <laughs> but, but that doesn't make sense. But Nathan Spooner coming in does and the the, the Tony Goldfinch, Eddie Hekanui thing, I get people being annoyed about. But this guy appears, from what I've heard, uh, appears to be outstanding prospect, will be Irish qualified and more of a once-off type policy mm. then let's let's use this going forward in general i think yeah. it's you know project players yeah it's a professional sport and yeah mm. the, an element of this is gonna like obviously rugby is years and years and decades behind football but that's the way it's gone in, in that sport because you're under so much pressure to achieve and succeed and fill your stadium when you're winning uh, matches and mm. in monsters eyes keenan knox is a better prospect than obviously the the local Tideheads were in that in that age grade, so yeah, I think he's he is an exciting prospect for Munster fans, and I guess that's the nature of the game now. Yeah, slightly conscious of the time, so um, we will allude to Leinster's victory. I mean, again, not a great deal to say about it. They 
won well in the end, but maybe a little bit concerning that they uh, yeah. just shipped so many points. They started really well, and then, it, as has happened a, num- a number of times in, in the last couple of months when the top-tier players are away, they just switched off briefly um, for periods of game. Some really impressive performances from the likes of Ross Maloney and Caelan Doris again, but I think the coaching staff will be keen for um, those kind of lapses in concentration and sloppiness just to, to be eradicated. Um so yeah, plenty of work for Leinster still to do, even despite the, the six tries. Absolutely. Stu McCloskey playing rugby football of the highest uh, yeah. highest order uh, away in, well, it was Bridgend actually, I think it was not it, against yeah. the Ospreys, 8-0 win for Ulster. Um, how impressed were you by him? Really impressed. It was a good win for Ulster, 8-0 away. Ian Henderson obviously escaping the, the band that people thought was coming his way for that clear out. So that was good news for Ulster as well. But McCluskey was just superb. He's been excellent all season, to be fair. And he's developed his game just to include everything beyond ball carrying and offloading, which we would recognise particularly well um, in his game. But kicking-wise, he he kicked out of hand. He was in a first receiver, made some really good defensive reads. Um, and yeah, he's pushed on to to be a really key man in that squad. Even, you know, he's obviously always going to want to play for Ireland, but he's just kind of taken on that mantle of of a leader there in Ulster and he's been superb all season. Yeah, we're fairly stacked in the middle, obviously, Andy, but what does he need to do, do you reckon, McCloskey, in order to enter the fray there or or kind of bring himself further into contention for a slot in uh, our Joe Schmidt setup? Well, I was delighted he... he, uh Cut off his man bun last year, which has been a big, <laughs> posi- big, big positive shift. Um, no, uh, he's yeah. I like you said. He, I think it's just it's kind of an unfortunate timing issue uh, for him personally, um, but he 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 certainly strengthens the the reserve we've got. He's I don't think he he's just not there in terms of Henshaw, Ringrose. Aki right now and Chris Farrell. There's four standout players ahead of him um, who are, I think, better at different components of the game. But it certainly strengthens our reserves. And I, I don't think, I don't know, he, he may just be a guy who runs the course of his career as a top-level provincial player with a smattering of caps, uh, like a USA-Japan type tour away in the summer. But I don't know unless there's injuries or retirements do I see him breaking right through? Unfortunately, mm. yeah, you never know. Like Jesus, you don't know. The secret, like the Jesus, rugby. Like <laughs> at this stage, career end. You know, careers are shorter, and yeah. career-ending injuries, unfortunately, are at a higher rate. But if he stays fit and healthy and keeps performing like he does, there's obviously always a chance. But if everyone does also remain healthy, I, I don't see it happening. Uh, it looks like Johnny Sexton is going to start in Rome, which. I don't know if it comes as a, as a surprise, but obviously this game would have been identified by fans and observers as the uh, perfect opportunity to give Joey Carberry 80 minutes or at least uh, maybe an hour in the uh, starting 10 shirt. Yeah, um, we don't have the team obviously yet. <clears throat> Excuse me, we don't have the team obviously yet, but I guess that changed when Johnny Sexton went off after 23 minutes of the Scotland game. Um, and now the fact that he's only played 103 minutes since the 29th of December when Leinster played Munster. He hasn't got a flow of games at all. He had that knee tendon injury that kept him out of Leinster's Champions Cup games in January. And he just hasn't had that flow, as as Richie Murphy, the Ireland assistant coach, said out of Carton House this week. They want to get that back into him. He's at his very best when he has 
had a good run of games. You think of last year and he was largely injury free and, and played the best rugby of his career, really winning World Player of the Year and deservedly so. So I think that's a massive ish, uh, massive um, challenge for, for Ireland at the moment is getting that flow back into their game. You'll probably see Conor Murray as well for the same issue, just to, just to get that game time, just to get that fluency of their skill and decision making um, and their combination as well. Because while it is great to, to learn a bit more about your squad, especially away to Italy, where you would bank on the win. It's also important to get that momentum back in and finish out the Six Nations really strongly because this is the last competition you have before the World Cup. So I think uh, it would be no surprise if Sexton gets a good run out, yeah. Yeah, I think um, Joey's had quite a, a good run. If Joe Schmidt is exclusively looking, and rightly so, at his own Irish squad in their last six games, Carberry's had lots of time. He started the Australian test. He started in November. Um, he's now got 65 minutes in Murrayfield. That's quite a lot of time on the field. Um, and it's almost on a par with Johnny. And therefore... Um, well, like you said, it's good to learn more. Well, fantastic to learn more about Joey under pressure, and he's he's delivered. Um, I think Johnny needs to get back into some form because we've only got two and a half, you know, maybe two meaningful games left in Ireland's build up to the mm. World Cup. Johnny's not going to start. I wonder when he starts many of the uh, those dastardly yeah, uh, August risky. friendlies. They're very risky. So, um, yeah, he, he needs to get time on the field and get it, I think, get a little bit of... I'd love to see him adding a bit of variation into the, his own game. He's, a, he's an opportunity to do so against Italy, maybe to drop back a bit from the from the line, just yeah, bring other it, guys it, into the game in, a, yeah. in, a, in wider channels. Um, he's so he's he's. I think he's got into a habit of just being constantly a constant attacking threat right at the coal face, which is brilliant. Was no harm in dropping off that either for variation and using using strike runners a bit wider out off him as well. I think they've tried to. You've seen little glimpses of that trying to be um, pushed into Ireland's game in, in the last mm. two games mm. there was a number of times against England where Aki played first receiver and Sexton was yeah. was uh, slightly wider behind that first pot of forwards and creating there sometimes I think <laughs> he wishes he could play at 10 and 12 at the same time yeah. because then he gets to use his creative skills as the first receiver and as the second receiver with a bit extra time on the ball yeah. you even saw it against Scotland albeit with Carberry that time when Carber uh, Carberry and Aki created a bit of space for Rob Carney down yeah, the left-hand yeah. side. That was Carberry again at second receiver behind that first pot of forward. Mm. So I think they are uh, conscious of trying to trying to build that into their game. And Sexton hasn't been really far off, has he? Like, he, no. he started well against Scotland. Even in the England game, he he did try to mix up a little bit against that ferocious defence. If you think of the penalty just before Keane Healy's try, that was actually from one of his short grubbers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, England got offside. And then early in the second half, he tried another one where Aki got blocked off. And they probably should add a penalty. Um, they didn't get the advantage there. And then he had the kind of crossfield kick where he um, absolutely eviscerated Jordan Larmer for not being in position to mm. chase that kick. Um, so he has been trying to mix up. But yeah, I think Gav, just a, a start again would help him find that fluency. When you mentioned the uh, dastardly August friendlies there, like if the argument in favour of playing Sexton now is to kind of allow him to build a rhythm and momentum mm. in the green jersey, then can you afford to not play him in August? Yeah, I, I think I'd love him. Uh, there's there a bit of talk of late, certainly in the last six months, from from uh, Lancaster and Johnny himself about modelling his career on why not play till 40. 
Look at, what Tom, look at what Tom Brady does. Right, Tom Brady is taking way less contact contact than Johnny Sexton. So if he does plan on modelling his career going into the future, which I'd love to see on Brady, he does need to drop back into the pocket more often and he needs to add self-preservation into his repertoire and his, his forward pack around and we're going to actually thank him for it. And so is his head coach um, because he's of huge value to us, but he's not of any value when he's covered in blood getting the HIA under the stands because he's fearless. So it's it's just, it doesn't mean you're changing someone's character. I think it means your self-preservation is important in in the quarterback position as well. And I'd love to see him, it'd be nice to see him play three, two or three of the friendlies in August. Um, I used to joke about the older tens wearing the white tuxedo. You know, that, that uh, idea that you go onto the field in a white tux and when you come off, it's still clean. Yeah. But everyone around you looks has looked amazing and had involvement in the game, but you haven't been central to the physicality of it. So I'd love to see the old white tux on him on, uh, <laughs> in August and, and bring that into his game. Because he has it in his game. It's an easy fix. It's I think it's just a little bit of a shift in, in mentality. Um, self-preservation doesn't mean you're weak or cowardly. Question here from the great Mark Robson, uh, your pal, Murray. Question to you, but for the two of you, and I think you uh, will enjoy the question, actually, Andy. It's in relation to something you are um, quite fond of discussing. So <clears throat> bear with me here as I read this from Robbo. We really should Can you read it in his, in his northern I will Irish not. accent? <laughs> I will not. <laughs> um, for the sake of us all. Uh, he says, hi, Murray, follow-up question from me. Credit required. I need the publicity. Uh, <laughs> following the fascinating podcast last week, areas of Japan have had uh, major heat waves. A September high in Yokohama, 90 degrees with 90% humidity. We can expect perhaps 25 degrees with 80% humidity versus the Scots. Maybe hotter and stickier. Dwayne Peel, who played in Japan for Wales, told me how slippery the ball is and how exhausting it was to play in. So the question is, is Ireland's super phase retention and recycle style sustainable in those potential conditions, especially with the number of games in a shortish spell? I appreciate player rotation, but also the draining nature of Ireland's style. We were nearly out of players by the Argentina game in 2015, though that may have been pure bad luck. I think this discussion point has been missed by many commentators and would love to hear you and Andy mull it over. It possibly fuels Andy's argument further. I think England's adapted clever kick-based style, uh, clever kick-based style as seen in the first two rounds of the Six Nations is more suitable to forthcoming conditions in Japan. As Eddie loves to say, it's all about Japan, mate. And Eddie has been up close and personal with Japanese conditions. By the way, I love you two together. A perfect marriage. Cheers, Rob. <laughs> I'm romant- right here, Rob. Kind of romantic. <laughs> <laughs> it's also the longest. Is it the longest wow. question on record? Well, it, uh, that's actually all we've got time for. Okay. So we'll catch you next week. <laughs> Um, it is a really good question, really interesting, and thanks a million to uh, Rob for getting in touch. Yeah, it is really interesting, um, and I think he's kind of made the point and given that kind really of question, background argument as well, and and summed up pretty well. Yeah, I guess that would be a concern um, if the weather does turn out like that, and that'd be a concern for every team, no matter what your style is. Really, it's going to be sapping and exhausting. Um, but it has been interesting to see that England, having focused on retaining the ball as much as Ireland really on average in the last couple of seasons are now happy to to shift the pressure back onto the opposition by by rolling those kicks behind or sending one up into the air to compete um, and that they're adapting their style and Eddie Jones has always warned us that everything that England do is about the World Cup so I mean it's hard to foresee now but I guess Andy you made the argument about 
the number of rocks and they hardly need to reduce that in your in your yeah i feel a little like a broken record but it's it's the reason i'm repetitive about it is because it's also repetitively happening it's not changing the trend is not changing for a year and a half we average 140 rocks a game and our our peers the top the other top four in the world's top five average 80 so we do we're 60 rocks additional per game is significant um you add in i hadn't actually ever kind of considered you add in uh 90 humidity potentially 90 degree heat a slippy ball uh, technically going to add problems in terms of ball retention in contact going into the rock and obviously from a physically exhausting nature it's it's there, there's a little bit of concern for sure about that style and um the the other concern is I don't I actually don't see it changing I don't think Joe is going to change that he's like he's the he's a man with a plan and that's his plan and you know Martin Luther King speech I have a dream he didn't say I have a plan if we if you want players to have um a bit of control a bit of impairment he needs to relinquish control from the Irish team a little in order to allow guys make more creative risky decisions at times which drops your rook count but I don't think that's his management style he's he has a plan he has made us more successful than we've ever been in our history and we've got to allow for that it it doesn't mean it's not without its risks that are incumbent mm. similarly he could have made us the most creative team and most flaky team and we could be having the same question we need more structure that the, the the brass facts are we've, we're, at, we're at a higher point we've, than we've ever been and more consistent than we've ever been in performance. But there are, there are key components in that that look a bit worrying for Japan. Yeah, the other side of it, I guess, and in fairness to Mark, he did follow up with another message. Oh, right. Fairness, uh, saying it's also pretty tough to defend for that long. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Especially in those conditions. So mm. there's the other side of it. And we've seen that Ireland have been able to break teams down through that intentional mm. possession a number of times. It's so exhausting making that many ta- that many tackles, both in terms of your discipline and your actual tackle technique and winning those those collisions and just recycling the numbers to ensure that you're always numbered up well on each side of the rook because Ireland aren't just looking to smash shoe you. They're waiting for that opportunity, say, as we saw for Conor Murray's try against Scotland, where there was carrying between the 250-metre lines. They get the overload on the left and then they use their skill set, both passing and kicking, to create a, a really excellent try with a bit of kick pressure from Chris Farrell. Mm. So I think there is that plus side of it in that it's so exhausting. There, there are pluses. Like Jerry Thorney pulled me up on it correctly at the the Murray uh, over Murrayfield. He said, "Look, we you're you're banging on about this the 140 rooks a game." He says it it would it would seem that you're said, suggesting we can't create. And he goes, what about this try? What about that against New Zealand? And, and he was dead yeah. right. I hopefully I don't appear too negative about it. I just I'm concerned about the number of rocks and how exhaustive it, it is. I would love us. I would love Joe Schmidt to release the valve a little bit and allow more creativity. And I hope he does that. Um, but it doesn't. We have been creative in in spurts it's been sporadic but we have sliced teams open we did it in Twickenham in the first half in the Grand Slam game we cut them to shreds with some really brilliant creative play so it's not like we can't do it I'm just voicing that concern and I also want to apologise to Jerry Thorny 
<laughs> Jerry was upset, was he? He was a little upset with me. Yeah, I criticised the Irish team. Ah, poor Jerry. <laughs> I know. Um, we need to uh, need to talk about Sean O'Brien. Didn't really get a chance to talk about him last week. We also have a question here from um, Eugene O'Sullivan in relation to London Irish. But firstly, um, O'Brien. It's. I mean, he's been fairly well eulogised now over the last week in the sense that he is uh, departing the Irish scene. But in terms of his current form, is he far off, um, let's say, being back to 90% of his best? Yeah, I don't think he's far off at all. I think, I think he had a really good game against Scotland. Thought he was very competitive at the breakdown, got his hands and slowed the ball on a number of occasions and possibly could have had a, at least one turnover penalty. I thought he was um, energetic in the carry and... As always, his communication levels are, are really good. Again, it's that slightly unseen stuff of, of leadership and his uh, personality in, in the change room and the confidence he gives to other players as well. So I thought it was a really encouraging performance from him. And certainly speaking to him earlier on this week, he felt he's not far off at all. He felt really good after that 65 minutes. And he's confident in his body despite the injuries. He feels that, listen, they've been big issues, as he says. It's not a case of his body breaking down. He just gets the broken arm or, or whatever. Um, so he's in a really confident place. And I think it would be good, again, for him to get that run and consistency of game, especially in that back row that looked really good, I thought, with Conan and O'Brien. So uh, Conan Omani, rather. So, um, yeah, encouraging stuff from O'Brien, I thought. And for a man who's got uh, the, the word tank in his nickname, he's got a very distinctive high pitch you said his, <laughs> his, uh, his quality of communication on the field he's got one of those voices that you can hear all over the stadium no matter how loud it is it was a bit like when Mick McCarthy was man we'll hear it again now when he was managing the Irish football team if there's 40,000 people you can actually hear Mick bellowing instructions <laughs> I think uh, Sean's got that pitch that maybe only some dogs can hear and uh, <laughs> you definitely hear him on the field yeah he, he I, I played one of his first ever games with him uh, down in Connacht away and he was about 18 and he berated me about five minutes into the match. I felt I was the more senior guy and he, he ate me because I didn't hit him up on a on a short line. He was so hungry for the ball and that kind of hunger and want for possession and carries has kind of ran through his career. Um, stood him in, in great stead as a guy who went on to um, be a top, uh, arguably the top player in the Lions tour in, in New Zealand. Um, and I think it's a good call by him to go to Irish. I, there's an element of, you know, he's had injuries. He's probably getting significantly more money and he's 32 and he'd have done his World Cups and his Lions Tour and he can have a positive impact over in in that club and that culture and he can earn handsomely for it. And in any other walk of life, people who progress on at that age are earning are, are making moves based on money and looking after their family and, and they're all completely legitimate things and I think he should be applauded for his career to date and, and wish the best of luck for the London Irish move as well. Yeah, the question here from Eugene, uh, this was actually sent to us last week, I thought it was a good question but we didn't uh, get around to it. He asked, do you reckon London Irish is being reassembled with the help of the IRFU as a fifth province uh, for good players that are on the fringes of the four provinces um, and or and are Irish qualified elsewhere? And if so, do you think those players could be more easily selected for Ireland than, say, their equivalents at other clubs abroad? Yeah, I don't, I don't think the IRFU have any involvement at all. Um, there is obviously, the, it's the clues in the name, there is a really strong Irish contingent behind the club, though, the ownership and, and Mick Cross and... Um, mm are all Irish and I think this signing is very much an indication that they want to bring back that identity strongly you're getting a number of things from their point of view a world class player in the back row if he's fit that mentor and, and leader figure 
for what is a pretty young squad. And then, I guess, commercially and with that support base, you're getting a really strong addition to the club. Like, if I was living in London and I was Irish or my parents were Irish, I'd be going to watch London Irish because Sean O'Brien is a player I've grown up watching. He's an iconic figure in Irish rugby and he's going to bring in, I would say, thousands of people to the club. On top of that, he's going to bring in probably new sponsorship uh, and other companies who are who have kind of Irish connections as well. You know, you can imagine him going up to the boxes after the matches, shaking hands, having a few pints with the lads. Uh, he'll be really important that, in that regard. And if he's, if he's injured, he'll be a draw in that regard as well. So <laughs> it makes sense on that front. Um, and it has been, for me, I think for the last five, six years, I've always wondered why aren't London Irish tapping into that identity a bit more? You've had guys like Brendan Mackin there this season, Connor Gilson and um, and a number of other guys over the years just kind of in and out of the club, but they haven't fully committed to that identity, I guess. Paddy Jackson uh, seems to be on his way there next season as well. They haven't announced that. As well as a whole crop of world-class players, Nick Phipps and Curtis Rona have been confirmed. Waisaki Naholo is expected to go there. Adam Coleman, even the Wallabies lock, is being strongly linked as well. And they're moving into a new stadium in Brentford. Mm. Uh, it's currently being built. That's in the summer of 2020. A lovely stadium, very close to Heathrow as well. So really good access, potentially, if Irish fans were going to go over and follow the club. So I think it's really smart from London Irish to, to rebuild that strong Irish connection. Is it going to make players more selectable? We don't really know that. Sean O'Brien is saying... He's hopeful of playing on for Ireland. Uh, he said he hasn't spoken to Andy Farrell specifically about it. So it remains to be seen because it's not written down anywhere. There's no RFU law book that says if you leave, you're, you're out of the picture. Joe Schmidt has obviously pushed that pretty strongly. Um, and I would imagine it will continue because it mm. kind of uh, negates a couple of threats and, and keeps players at home. But I think it's good just for, for London Irish's point of view to, to build that connection again. It would be a great idea, I think. Like the, the exiles idea has been in existence for a long long time but to f- maybe to communicate it or to get a pitch a story to back to the IRFU and say why not look at us as the legitimate uh the legitimate option outside of uh outside of the four provinces and say yeah well okay we're going to buy into this a little bit it, it does add to that fifth province idea there's a huge expat community there who would absolutely adore that idea and the london irish amateur club has a, a unique kind of cultural identity and setting within certainly within southwest london and i also i think that move to brentford is, is a really really brilliant move commercially for them reading just it just mm. didn't work it was yeah. it was too far removed from their their culture and history but if they i think if they got a you know a pr team on that and communications involved and and tried to market it and tap it up with the irfu and both dovetailed on that you you could absolutely legitimately say we've got a fifth exile province mm. it's not it's not new it's like mm. it's they re- did explore before didn't it's they it's been there before and now you've Irish ownership Irish coaches internationals coming through it would be worth it spot on Murray your interview this week is with Joy Neville yeah one of the best referees around now she's risen through the ranks pretty quickly and continues to do so and um, so it's great to catch up with her and find out about what goes into her job well Joy thanks so much for for joining us how are you I'm great. Thank you, Murray. Yeah, I'm delighted to uh, to be speaking with you. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah, good to get a chance to catch up. I guess the latest uh, kind of achievement for you in a long list of them was to referee that Spain-Russia game in the Rugby Europe Championship, a, a, a tournament that people probably don't see a lot of. How did that game go for you? 
Yeah, look, I was delighted to be appointed the game. I done a men's um, tier tier three last uh, last year, and um, it was obviously going to be a spicy affair, you know, with Russia qualifying for the World Cup coming up, and then Spain obviously being extremely disappointed mm. when they they played Belgium and the controversy that went on there. And so I, I was expecting a, a feisty game, which it, which it was. Um, it went well, thankfully, um, and you know, um, it was very competitive. And and the main aim as a referee is to come out. As anonymous as possible and thankfully that that took place <laughs> that's always a good marker um it's been an incredible journey for, for you in the last couple of years um obviously as a player amazing history going to two world cups and having on to the 2013 grand slam i mean i guess to jump back to the start of it how did that translate into refereeing something that a lot of players probably don't imagine getting into when they're the ones giving out about referees Absolutely. I think there's a massive stigma with, with refereeing and referees against referees. Um, and I certainly had that stigma. <laughs> um, okay. and I had, I had no, um, interest. I didn't even contemplate refereeing in the first place. I got approached by, um, Dave McHugh, who, who ended up being my mentor for many years, um, who, who refereed in three World Cups himself, uh, a legend in, in his own right. And, um, yeah, I just said to him, look, I didn't know him very well. And I said, Dave, I said, I've dedicated 11 years of my life to rugby and I'm just literally hanging up the boots and you're coming coming at me yeah. with something, um, with just as much commitment. And I kind of laughed. And in fairness to him, probably he, he probably knew because it takes a certain character to last that long and give that much commitment. And I suppose referees, you have similar commitments. Well, you have, the, the, if not more commitments, um, but you still have to have the same characteristics. And he said to me, look, I'll give you eight months and if Knowing you, I, I would think that you're looking. You would be looking for another challenge. Um, and still, at that 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 rate, had no interest. Um, I didn't really want to go down that line, um, and nor I didn't think I'd enjoy it. Um, so eight months later, he rang me, and uh, into the day nearly. So I knew he meant business. So I said, look. I make one phone call to, to a character very high up in the rugby circles, which I respected his opinion and I knew that I just wanted to know what, what was achievable. And mm. if I were to take on this, this journey, I wanted to do something that no other female had done. And I asked him one question. I asked him, um, do you think it's possible for a female to referee in, in the top level, the men's division of the All-Ireland, um, the Pantaris, Gary Owens, etc.? And he said, joy, not my lifetime. And I said, okay. And I respected his opinion. I still respect his opinion to this day. I just uh, put the phone down and I picked it up to Dave McHugh and I said, I'm in. Um, I, I suppose I knew what hadn't been achieved. I knew that it was going to be a challenge. Um, and I suppose I'm the kind of person that if, if I'm going to do something, I do it with 100%. And at least I know, you know, what my drive is or what my end goal is. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, I, I rest back in uh, yeah. a few years ago. Absolutely, and the rest has been history to the point where I, I don't. I think it's brilliant that when you're achieving something new, it's not even, I guess, remarked upon. Oh, it's a female referee because we've all become so used to it, which is fantastic. It's really interesting you mentioned the stigma of ex-players there, um, because that's probably yeah. one of the challenges, isn't it, to get ex-players actually into refereeing because they've they've the best knowledge of the game, I guess. Yeah, well, look, number one, what I'm what I'm loving at the moment is there's very little talk about me or my gender or, or my sexuality. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really happy about that because. For me, it's it's about it's not about the character, the person in the middle. You know, it's it's not about the gender um, or any other characteristics. It's just about a job being done to a certain level. Um, so that I'm really happy with, and certainly I think as ex players, I think there's massive opportunities there. Um, I didn't, nor was I aware of it. And I'm, 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 I suppose I big thank 
thanks to, to Dave McHugh for, I suppose, mm. hounding me to get into it. Like, cause it took me a, a good nine months to properly enjoy it there from, from that moment on, even. Um, um, but, you know, there is massive opportunities there. And certainly I think you have that insight. You have the knowledge of what the teams are trying to achieve. You maybe have, um, you know, you have that connection. You're, you're that bit more understanding what, you know, what they're trying to do and mm. how they're feeling the game is going where they want it to go. And that empathy, I think, is there more so than someone who hasn't played before. Yeah, definitely. And you're obviously on a full-time IRFU contract now. So I guess w- what does it, look like for a training week for you and we obviously see a match day and that's the most important part of the job but how much work goes into it it's actually funny because i've you know played for over a decade and you strive to to become semi-professional and you know you're 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 an amateur living a professional um uh, weekly routine kind of um mm. and now thankfully you know i get to do what i love still involved in the game and i'm full-time contracted with the RFU, which i think is you know sometimes i have to pinch myself but it's there's a lot more entails in in our in, in our job and our role um, as officials, than you know, that, that than what people probably perceive. Um, you'd you'd end up you you pretty much you're abroad every weekend between Pro 14, European Cups, Challenge Champions, International Six Nations, November Series, Sevens, Women's World Series, um, uh, the June International. So like you're you're pretty much abroad, um, you know, pretty much every weekend, bar let's say a month or two. Um, you end up coming home in a Monday. You review your game. You have an assessor that's um, allocated to your game. They assesses your game, and you have to do the same. Go through your game. Um, probably take about four hours. Um, write a report. They then you put the two reports together, match them up, and work on your weaknesses. Work in areas that need improvement. Um, acknowledge the areas that you're doing well in, um, and just try to better yourself for the next game. Uh, come, you know, with that you train Monday, Wednesdays. Come Wednesday, the report's completely finished. And then you look into your pre-match prep. So this is probably individual to me. Every referee is different. But if I were to be like, I'm refereeing Pro 14 next weekend and I've already watched two games from Kings and two games from um, um, Cardiff, you know, so that would be the, that's for you to get an insight to any problematic players, any trends, um, any issues that have arisen. And so that if it happens on the day that you're not completely shocked or you know how to react better to it. Yeah, wow. Um, and then you travel Thursday, Friday, and they, you know it's just it's, it's a cycle. Yeah. Do you do you enjoy the travelling side of it? Um, look, it's it's great. You get like because I'm involved in the sevens, I get to go to unbelievable places around the world. But certainly, the travel does get to you because the the the, the magnitude of, of travel that that mm-hmm. we do. And um, but look. There's there's perks and cons for the job, but I can't complain. Like if someone's listening to this, I always feel bad for giving out about the travel <laughs> because so many people would jump uh, at the opportunity to, to be able to, you know. But um, it does become monotonous. But it's part of the job, and you just have to get on with it. Yeah, it's the same in mine. Don't worry. I sometimes complain about going away on yeah. these trips, and my friends remind me of how lucky I am. It looked like you had an interesting experience in Romania in December there with the snow. It looked incredible. <laughs> Oh, stop. It was a funny experience, all right. They, they expected an inch of snow and they got four foot. But the wow. funniest part was when, you know, you, as, as a ref, you, you dictate whether the games go ahead or not. So I arrived at the grounds and barely got there in, in the car. 
and uh, and the guy, in fairness, the guy representative of the, the remaining union, he was very optimistic and walked onto the pitch and, you know, there, there was a load of guys digging and there was a couple of police around with guns and what is going on here? There was a 52-seater bus outside, not realising until afterwards that didn't they um, release some prisoners to, to dig the snow <laughs> off the pitch? <laughs> oh <my laughs> Which, you know, a fair place and it was some experience um, but there was there wasn't a hope that the game to go ahead. Anything that was lifted off the pitch had been, you know, had been replaced by the falling snow. But okay. these things happen. It was yeah. unfortunate. That was an interesting one. I want to get your, your take on, I guess, what the biggest challenge in terms of the laws of the game are now. I mean, on the outside, we're always talking about the breakdown and I guess the aerial contest. For you as a referee, what have you found at the moment to, to be the biggest challenge on the pitch? Look, the, the joy and the downfall to the game of rugby is the fact that it's it's very um, it's grey. It can be grey in certain areas. You know, it's completely down to the um, it's it's down to the the the, the interpretation of the referee. Mm. Um, you have some referees or some competitions. For instance, I always had I've had this debate with a few people. In, in the men's championship premiership in England, um, there is tendencies, and one would argue that the game, that the ball is much harder to steal in the poach than it would be in Pro 14 mm. um, in Europe. And as a result, I think there was a couple of debates on, in, in particular in Europe, because the teams that play in, in the English uh, competitions and then come to Europe, and, you know, when they're used to the referees that they're dealing with, uh, giving that extra couple of seconds to see if the poacher lasts the clear out compared to being refereed by uh, refs from Wales, Ireland, France, who don't allow that as much time and probably reward the poacher a lot faster. So it's down to the uh, interpretation of the referee. And I think the main thing is that there, you know, as a ref, that you go out from minute one to the last 80 seconds to 83rd minute of the game, you know, whatever long it lasts, that you're consistent across the board. Um, I think probably, you know, that causes a lot of uh, questions as far as how long does the poacher have to be on the ball. Um, and certainly I think it makes it easier in the ref if you are that consistent across the board. Um, other other areas, I think the scrum is becoming very difficult to referee at the moment. Um, I think there's an awful lot of illegal scrummaging that, that are taking place and it's, it's very difficult for the referee to, um, you know, uh, observe what the first offence is. Yeah. And it's, just, it's just getting harder, I think, Murray, you know. Um, yeah. You know, would you be the same same opinion? Yeah, as I far guess as the scrum. The scrum yeah, certainly. I find that the trickiest place to analyze, even when you're after the game and you're you've got multiple replays and angles and things. Um, it's definitely a tricky area, and the breakdown obviously is, as you say, it can be different between leagues. But um, doing a good job there, I guess, a, a tricky one for you. Would would there be any laws that you'd actually change that you'd like to see changed? Um, yeah, just back to that scrum as well. It's a fact for me. It's, it's about the time of the balls in play, and I think for everyone's um, entertainment of the game, if something is is done, or um, you know, if, I think it just I think we need to speed up the, the scrum and the issue there. Um, what I would change is if you have a knock on and um, you're you're playing advantage to a knock on, and the play the team that knocked the ball on then regather the ball, and then they, they prevent the ball from being stolen. Um, you know, most referees would just, you know, just stop the game and and no advantage would, would have a scrum. Yeah. Uh, what I would change is allow allow more time and acknowledge whether, you know, an offence has taken place thereafter and reward the player for, for a hold on penalty. I think, you know, it would speed up the game and 
acknowledge the legal place in that player as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Listen, I could talk rugby law nerd stuff all day to you, but uh, I guess just to wrap up, yeah. the, the, your list of achievements is incredible. World Cup final in 2017, the the Seven Circuit, Pro 14, all sorts of competitions, and obviously World Rugby Referee of the Year in 2017. How big of an honour was it to win that award? Um, it was massive, to be honest, Mary. I didn't actually like. I was I was informed that I, you know, that I that I'd won that award um, about a month prior. But I actually oh. thought it was in the category of female referees. So I didn't realise it was for within the world um, for, for both genders. So I, I think I was, I think it was probably afterwards that I properly acknowledged and realised the magnitude of, of the award and the amount of people who tried to contact me and, you know, even getting a tweet from the president um, of Ireland to congratulate yeah. me, what a gent that he is and, you know, um, role model for, for supporting women's sports as well and, and look it's, it's a massive honour a massive honour for me my family my wife um, and you know it was it was a great occasion and in Monaco wow what a place um, mm. but yeah I look back and I certainly remember those moments and be thankful for what I've you know achieved and what I've got to experience um, in this journey yeah very last one what would your goals be for the next few years now in the next couple of years, I think, you know, it's it's funny how when I spoke to you about that AIL goal and, you know, your goals constantly move and it's probably still one of one of my, um, you know, for me, biggest achievements because I think we all get told at some stage you can't do something and it's 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 something special when you prove someone wrong. Um, and, and whilst I've done Pro 14 and EPCR, I'm still very proud of, of that moment. Um I'm very realistic about my goals. People say to me, oh, you're, you're ref in men's Six Nations. For me, I'm no more near to, to refing in men's Six Nations um, at this present moment. And I won't be for another couple of years. I still need to put the head down and prove prove my place um, in, in as a referee in, in, in the world um, and earn my stripes. And, you know, I, my, my, my next goal would be to be on the line as assistant referee for men's Six Nations. And if that happens... Well, I'd be a very proud woman, and you know, if it doesn't, I've I've certainly enjoyed everything today, and I'll certainly keep trying. Yeah, absolutely, and best of luck, and and keep up the fantastic work. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, thanks, Mary. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Great to hear from Joy. Uh, obviously, the women's team and the twenties are in action as well this weekend, Mary, in Italy. Yeah, um, exciting times for the under-20s. A couple of changes with Angus Kernan back from Ulster senior duty and Craig Casey returning from injury. So um, a good bit of continuity there. Um, and Catherine Dane comes in at scrum half for, for the Ireland women team. Uh, Lindsay Pete back on the bench as well. A, a big reinforcement there. So yeah, they'll both be looking for, again, to keep some momentum going over in Italy. Cool. Super Rugby is back. We're all excited to see it back. It's actually one of the best times of the year, of the year sorry, in the, the rugby calendar. Any standout? Uh, aspects of it uh, from the opening weekend, Andy? Uh, well, for me, I suppose, as as a comparison to, say, those concerns I've got with uh, Irish rugby and maybe Northern Hemisphere rugby also and the the increased amount of rooks, the uh, the two televised games I saw, Melbourne Rebels, they won their match with 58 rooks and they had 13 offloads. And uh, the Chiefs against the... Um, Highlanders, uh, they both had less than 70 rooks. So um, if you translate that into six months' time, at every kind of level, the guys who are going to be exposed to World Cup and international play, their current baseline is very different to our current baseline. 
Um, in I suppose in simplistic terms, when you get to the World Cup, would you rather have a very fast guy who you need to s- slow down and and tie in, rein in a bit, or do you want a really slow a slow guy who you're trying to rev up? And I, you know, at the moment our game is potentially a bit more slower and we're going to try and open it up and rev it up in a World Cup when the time comes that we need tries and we need this this and that to create something magic to to squeeze out a quarter-final win against the All Blacks for South Africa. That's that's my concern where these guys, they're, they're probably going to go the opposite way and they're going to try and say, let's get a bit more control into our game. That's an easier thing to do, I think. Yeah, I just... I. I love these early mornings on Fridays and Saturdays now. Half, getting up at half six is never more fun than when Super Rugby's on. I really enjoyed Quake Cooper's return. I thought yeah. the Rebels played really flat. Like he was just metres away. He was almost kind of breaking the offside line on, on the scrums even from an attacking point of view. Really enjoyable to watch. Um, and then there's always a couple of plays. Joe Schmidt has talked about how he steals things from Super Rugby all the time. I thought the Crusaders scored a really cool try where the nine kind of stood off the scrum and he was actually, it was five metre scrum. He actually crossfield kicked, which you don't see a lot. Eight kind of pops to him. They run a really narrow play around him uh, with Matteelli, the winger, staying wide and he sends a crossfield kick. Not the best kick, but forced an error from the Blues. Um, and in the same game, actually, the Blues ran a really interesting exit play where they actually had a move designed into the into the exit. You know, it, it, they received the kickoff, bashed up twice, and then they run that kind of dummy loop play that Ireland used with Joe Schmidt and pass back inside. Just interesting to see that now your exit strategies are being quite quite patterned and stuff like that. So um, there's always a little bit of interesting uh, play and, and exciting players. So yeah, bring it on again. Yeah, no doubt we'll be chatting about it again uh, as the season progresses. Andy, we have to let you go. I think your taxi's actually outside. Oh. <laughs> That's, <laughs> like That's nice. my arm here. Taxi. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Thanks as always. Thanks, we'll catch Cam. you again soon. And Murray, thanks to yourself thanks. as well. Uh, a reminder that the 42 Rugby Weekly is brought to you by Volkswagen. Proud sponsors of Irish Rugby. Uh, enjoy the game over the weekend, especially if you're heading over to Rome. And um, until next Thursday, take it easy. Thank you.